So last week, you know, we talked a little bit about shame. It was a tough message. It was a hard message. Many of you guys came to me afterwards and were like, yeah, that one, that was kind of like that. That one hurt a little bit. And I think it's good to kind of lean into those really difficult concepts. I mean, it's sort of like the ghost of Christmas past, you know, tapping on our shoulders, shame, you know, feeling bad about something that happened in the past. We talked about how, you know, there's a difference between what I, uh, what I did and who I am. So shame is that voice in us that says, I'm worthless, I'm insignificant, I'm a defect. That's not good. That's not from God. God declares something very different about us. Um, but the, there is a distinction between shame and I am worthless, insignificant, and the idea that I am sinful, because that is actually a true statement. And I want to distinguish between I am uh, worthless, insignificant, and a defect to uh, what does God say about me in regards to my sinful nature? You see, everybody knows, and I don't have to even tell you, that something is really broken and, and, and has gone wrong with humanity. Not just humanity on like the macro level, but as you get down to each one of us, there is clearly something wrong with you and me. Uh, something very wrong. We try to do good, and sometimes we, even though we know we shouldn't do something, we'll do it. We'll feel shamed about it. We'll feel guilty about it, but we'll, we'll do it again. Something has gone wrong. And today in our second week of Advent, as we're celebrating the coming of Jesus, I want us to lean into our brokenness to see why Jesus actually even came and what our brokenness says about the love of God and why God needed to come down to be with us. It's not going to be a message about a baby. It's not going to be a message about shepherds and angels. We'll get to that. But today we're going to talk about the theological understanding of the incarnation and what its implications are for us. If I just used a big word and you don't know what that means, incarnation just means God himself became incarnate. It means in the body, in the flesh, in a human form. And what I want to do today is let the word of God lay across us as a diagnostic for what has gone wrong in us and what's wrong with us. We need to go to the word. And in fact, I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter one today. And we're going to let the word of God tell us what's wrong with us. Because trying to fix a sickness when you don't know what the sickness is, it doesn't work too well. You know, if, if you go to the doctor and the doctor just begins to experiment with you, you know, that's not a good feeling, right? You, you know you're in trouble. The doctor's like, you know, hey, I don't know, I don't know what's wrong, but let's just, well, I don't know, let's, he gets a book, he's like, let's just try this. And, and you're like, oh, you know, no, nobody wants to be there. You got to know, uh, you got to know what the, the sickness is before you can fix it. You got to know what's wrong, and you got to know by getting help so that you can be able to cure it. So what I'm going to do today is go to the Word of God and just going to John 1 is going to be our focus. That's going to be our main uh, section. If you want to get to that in your Bibles, but I'm just going to read a few other verses leading up to it. And Psalm 14.3 is a great place to start. Hmm. I'm just going to read these. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none, none who does good. Not even one. Not even one. You know, our, our culture does not believe this. Our culture doesn't believe this. So basically what we do is we rank, you know, we're like, you can always find somebody that's way better than you. You know, I, I, I can find lots of people better than me. Right. But what's other, what's also true is I can find people way worse than me. 
you know? I mean, we can all go back. You know, even if you're in prison, you can find, like, somebody that's, you know, done worse than you. That has a worse story, you know, more tragic, more, you know, more evil, whatever. You know, we could always pull out the Hitler card or, you know, some dictator, Genghis Khan. We could do whatever, you know, we can, we love to rank ourselves because then what that says is that, well, I'm not that good, but I'm also not that bad. I'm, all, you know, I'm not great, but, you know, hey, compared to this dude over here, I'm doing all right. But, our, but what, what he says here is something different in Psalm 14 because he says this, that matched up to the holiness of God, which is that attribute of God that's mentioned more than any other attribute in Scripture, more than even the love of God. We love to talk about the love of God. But the holiness of God, it says, it says matched up to the holiness of God, you are foul and filthy, all of you. And it, what it means when it says there is no one good, not even one. Psalm 143 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one alive, not a single one. It's interesting, too, in our culture. We love, you know, we, we love justice. We love the law. We love judgment. In fact, we love it so much that we create whole shows, any detective shows. How many of them are there? Just think about it in your head. are built around detectives, lawyers, judges, you know, a crime scene, like, you know, forensics. It's all about, we love, our culture loves the law. We love justice. We have, we have whole shows. They're just about judges, right? Judge Judy. You know, she gets up there. You literally watch her sit and pronounce judgment in various situations. And it's entertaining. We love it. We just want to Judge Judy, please, you know? Like, episode after episode, right? Just, and it's crazy. We love justice in the law. But what David is saying here is that God, who is a just judge, if he judged us, and he does, we would all be found guilty. David is saying, don't judge us because no one would be found righteous. It doesn't make God wrong for judging. What he's saying is that it's the fact that we're guilty that matters in this verse. Proverbs 20 says, who can say, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Who can say? Now that is a rhetorical question, right? That isn't like somebody going out there going, hey, oh, oh, me, yeah, I did. No, <laughs> no one's raising their hand saying, I've got, I'm, I'm the one that cleaned myself up. You know, I'm pretty good. I figured it all out. I'm righteous from this point on. No. So that's not what it's saying. It's a statement, not a question. Romans 8, 1, 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. If you're taking notes, you can go read this later. Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20 is literally the dismantling of every excuse a man or a woman could give about why they are good and not intrinsically broken. It, it just totally, uh, layer by layer, takes down this facade and begins in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Nope, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. <laughs> if that's not a Merry Christmas verse, I don't know what is. <laughs> and, and, and so, but in this text, what is he saying? He's saying you and I and everyone have a singular thing in common. And it's not 
our color, it's not our background, it's not our socioeconomic status. What is it that you and I and everyone outside this room has um, as our base commonality? What is it? Is that this, we are sinners, we are incapable outside of Christ of righteousness, that we will choose the wrong way if given an opportunity. That's our human nature. If some of us turn out better than others, that's common grace. You know, there's lots of good people out there, but the, the fact is, is that we all sin. There isn't a single one of us who has figured it out. And you know what that means? It means this to me. There should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. No such thing. There are, but there shouldn't be. An arrogant, judgmental, boasting Christian simply reveals that they don't understand their own faith. They don't understand what it's about. Because we all once walked among them. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous, not one. None of us could be boasting. None of us should be arrogant. None of us should be judgmental because of that. In other words, there isn't anyone here, listen, there isn't anyone here who has a resume that God would want to hire you because of your resume. Not a one. Not a one of you has a resume where God looked, oh, wow. You know what? I had this whole Jesus thing set up, but boy, you know, Johnny's, Johnny's doing really well at his grades, his life. You know, he, he's, he's being pure with his girlfriend. You know what? His resume looks really good. You know, I think we might have an exception here, boys. Let's let, you know, it doesn't work that way. There's no boasting. There isn't anyone has a resume God is interested in hiring because of who you are. But here's the good news. Last week when we talked about shame, that thing that you might bring into church, that guilt that you might feel when you come into a place like this. You know, I think it's natural to feel sometimes a little bit of guilt and a little bit of shame. Maybe the, the conscious is at work inside of you and, and you're saying like, hey, I, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that sometimes God does a hard work in me then I have to look at some really ugly stuff as God places the mirror of his word into my life. But if you are not, and you do not feel at all that conscious being moved and that what we call conviction from God, that in particular you should be most concerned because here's the fact and the reality is, is that, that the gateway for our everlasting joy is an understanding that we are bent toward rebellion. The gateway for our everlasting joy is an understanding that we are created in God's image, yes, but our bent is towards sin. Our bent is toward our own benefit. Our bent is to put ourselves up above God, to live bigger than God, to be better than God, to be our God, and it never works. It never succeeds, and we always come back to the realization that our rebellion doesn't work. So this is the gateway for joy. What happens, though, is we become extremely busy, you know, and we actually create this noise in our life, and we begin to numb ourselves to just all of this forever. Go get a new phone. <coughs> buy some new pants. Maybe get a new car. Get a new game. And just keep buying all of these things that help us not look at us. Update your Twitter feed. Just do something. Just do anything. But don't stop and think. Don't listen to that little voice that's inside of you saying, hey, something is wrong inside of you. Just quiet it. Just, hey, I don't want to think about that right now. But God's response to our rebellion is nothing short of spectacular. And I want to unpack that. And that takes us to John chapter 1. Let's read it together. I'll read it to you. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he introduces us to John the Baptist, and then we're going to just pick it up in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh. Let me read that again. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh. This is you Christians. So let me read it one more time so that you get it. That you were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I want to point you to this ultimately when I read verses like this, that, that it's not you that's fixing you. You can't fix you. It's only what's gone wrong in you can be fixed by God. So basically, it's like this. If you take dirty hands and you're trying to wipe up a mess, you're just smearing it around. You're making it worse. You will surely smear the mess. So it's not by blood. It's not by your sweat. It's not by your will. It's not by your effort, not by your might. It can only be done by God. This has to be a, a work of God from beginning to end. But the good news is, is that in the next verse, he's going to tell us how it's fixed in verse 14. And the word became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If that sounds confusing, what John is saying when he's quoted here is that he's speaking to the eternality of Jesus. Now, John the Baptist was born months before Jesus, but he's saying that he was greater than me because he was before me. He is not some prophet. He is not some teacher. He's not just a cousin of mine. Jesus is God in the flesh. John is saying, hey, I was born. He came after me, but he was way before me. He always was. He always was. Let's keep reading the next two verses, man. I, I, I don't even want to preach this. I just want you to feel it like I... I want you to feel this verse. Don't let it roll off of my tongue. I just absorb it because these are unreal verses. And this is verse 16. For from his, Jesus's, fullness, we have all received what? Grace and gr upon grace. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through what? Through God. So the law is given through Moses. Moses brought the law, the Ten Commandments, and what we know sitting right here today is that the law isn't enough because we can't obey it. There's no way. The law isn't enough. And Moses comes with the law. Now, you know, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come with more law? Like, how tragic would that be if Jesus shows up with more law? He's like, he's like you know, you couldn't... Um, Keep the simple 10 that I gave you. You know, here's nine or 10 more. You know, you have the 10 commandments. Um, what's to make it, what's to stick, like, you know, here's 20. Aren't you glad that he didn't do that? 
No, he didn't come up with the law, come with more law. Moses came with the law. Jesus came with what? So he came again with grace and truth, completely different. He comes in truth. He is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is what you and I certainly are not. Sinless, perfect, spotless. He comes with grace and forgiveness. This is what makes my faith in Jesus, I believe, different from any other pursuit of religion, any other pursuit of spirituality, any other attempt to get to God, because it's not about me making my way through practicing the law all the way to God, but it's about God sliding down, coming down from his, his privileged place to me. Let me explain this to you. Ever been to a concert? How many of you guys have been to a concert, like a good concert, right? Yeah, like almost everybody has. You, you know, so you understand. So I'm going to use an analogy you get. Uh, you know who is not out with you in the concert? Who is not with you, hanging out with you in the crowd? The artist, right? He's not there with you. Uh, they're not sitting next to you like in line. Like you look next to you, it's Elton John. And he's like, hey, man, I can't wait for the show to start. You know, I can't wait. And you're like, whoa, you know, who, how'd you get out here? Where is the artist? Where's the artist in the situation? Well, he's in a place called the green room. The green room is a place of immense privilege. Uh, bands will come together and have these things written up called riders. And the rider is basically, these are all the things that the band wants in the green room. And they can get anything they want. There's a famous story about uh, one of the heavy metal bands that they always had. Like they wanted a, um, a bowl of M&Ms, but only one color. I, I think it was maybe green or something. And so, and so they, they, and they realized that if they got their bowl of green M&Ms, that, that the, uh, that the uh, stagehands were paying attention to all the other details. So in the green room, it's this place of immense privilege. Only certain people can go into the green room. In fact, they post security there to keep people like you and I, riffraff like us, out of the green room. It's a place of immense privilege. And so you get that, and you keep that in mind that, you know, I mean, how insane is it? Listen, if God himself puts on flesh and blood and steps out of the most privileged place in the universe, which is heaven, and begins to walk and dwell among us, knowing exactly who we are. He stands next to us. He eats with us. He wraps his arms around us. He participates in the show with us. There is literally nothing in your past, in your presence that's surprising to God. You haven't surprised him. You know, he hasn't like called a holy huddle. Hey, we got to figure you out. He's not, he's not like that. He, he knows. He knows everything. And the whole point of Christ's coming the whole point of this season, of the incarnation, of Christmas, of that whole thing is this, that grace and truth came instead of more law because it was made evident early on that you and I, we, we don't have the, the, the stuff to make it. We are incapable of becoming righteous as God demands. A righteous and holy God demands us to be righteous and holy. And here's why this is so good news. This is such good news. The fact that we can't make it outside of Christ it means that we, God is all in for our joy. You see, the Bible is the story of God, beginning to end. Like Genesis to Revelation is the story of God. It begins in the garden with some people naked, acting funny, but they, they're walking around with God and loving God. 
and then there's brokenness and there's sin. And the whole story is how God is this arc of, of, of redemption throughout the Bible. And, and it's all about Jesus and, and, and it ends in, in, a, in, a, in a banquet, it ends in a supper, it ends in a wedding. It's amazing. It's a great story. But because if the Bible is about the glory, glorifying of God, then how is God glorified? How is he glorified? He's glorified in our joy. He really is. And that's why it is the chief end of all of us to experience joy. Here's an illustration that might ring true with you. If you're having a hard time grasping onto what I'm saying, maybe you'll understand this illustration. So suppose a single guy comes up to me. He's like, hey, Pastor Scott, tell me all about uh, what it's like to be married. And suppose that I I reply, well, you know, hey, man, I'm just going to shoot you straight, dude. I made a commitment. I made a vow in front of God and men. My pastor was there. I had a best man. I made a commitment, but I got to be honest with you. It's a nightmare, man. It is a nightmare, but dude, I can't leave. I won't leave because I made a promise. I'm going to keep that promise. It's a commitment. It's not just a contract. It's a covenant, baby. But it's miserable, dude. I'm going to be honest with you. It's hard. Do you think that guy is going to go around and go and you know, I've been dreaming of that ever since I have a kid. I want what you have. No, he's not. There's nothing compelling in that. There's no glorifying in that moment. There's no weight at all in that. But let me tell you of Sarah's heart, my wife, of all the laughter in our relationship. Let's talk of the friendship and of the creativity. Let's talk about those things that for the two of us. This is a woman that I don't want to leave every day when we go to work, that I'm always excited when she gets home or when I get home and she's there. I am blessed to love my wife very much, and she is blessed to love me, and I'm loved by her. We've got a great peace in our home, and I know that she's in. She's in in spite of my idiocy, in spite of my imperfections. And I am in despite her shortcomings as well. And so we have this ferocious commitment to one another. And if I begin to unpack that with this young man, with maybe you, and I tell you all about that love, now all of a sudden something is being glorified in. Something is being made much of. And there's joy there. Others are attracted to it. So if God is after the praise of his glorious grace, then God is ferociously, listen, he is ferociously after your joy in him. Anybody walking around and having a conversation with people because you're told to and because you should, then you quote Bible verses, you put your hands in your pocket and you're like, man, I'm just white knuckling and I'm not very good at this thing. You know, I made a commitment to Jesus, but you know what? I can't tell you how much he means to me. I can't tell you how much I love him because honestly, like I feel so bad and it's just miserable. You know, that other guy's over there going, well, yeah, thanks for the Bible verses, but okay. You know, I'm not saying go in there with all the answers, but you have to begin to articulate your joy in God because your joy isn't about your performance. It's about his performance. Your joy isn't about you. It's about his grace flowing through you. I want to lay this out before you. Where's your joy? Where's your joy in God? Because that is the thing that brings God the most glory. He doesn't want your raw, spectacular commitment to him. He wants you to live in obedience, yes, but he also wants your joy. He's most glorified in that. When he says to you, this is what marriage is. (coughs) 
He's not trying to take from you. He's trying to give you a gift. We got to get out of our minds as Christians that we are in this like moral cage. We're in this moral cage. But man, at least we got heaven. That's not compelling. That's not even reality. The teachings of God for us on things like sex and money and family, they're not God robbing from you. He wants to lead you into ever-increasing joy. The more we walk with God in glad obedience to Him, the more that joy flows from that. Why? For the praise of His glorious grace. And at the apex of God's plan to bring glory to His name, was the coming of Jesus Christ. The pinnacle of his glory is seen as God puts on flesh and blood and he clothes himself in the stuff of a first century Jewish carpenter from Galilee. Very much like you and I. The heart with lungs. He was a teenager, but he was God and he saved sinners. And the most important thing about this season isn't the manger, isn't the wise men, isn't that even that silly star? I mean, star is not silly. It's great. It's in the Bible. Okay. But the most important thing to realize is that all of these things point to your salvation and your salvation means joy. So at the very foundation of everything throughout this whole Christmas season, listen, listen, I love the lights. I love the shows, the productions. I want you to be here next week. But if you hear anything I've said, hear that Jesus wants to bring you ultimate joy. I have a question for you. Are you there? Do you want to be there? And you feel like you can't take that leap? And maybe you're on the other side, but you want to become a Christian or you want to feel that joy, but you're not there and you don't know how to get there. And the answer is, if you've heard anything that I've said today is that you are not righteous. You never can be, you never will be, but you can be seen as the righteousness of God because of what he did. He wants to save you. Only he can do that work in you. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you this morning because it's the biggest decision you can ever make by trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let me pray for you right now. Maybe you could just all bow your heads, close your eyes. I want us to quiet ourselves in this moment. I know it's been a long morning and I apologize for going late, but this could be the most important moment of your eternity. It honestly could be. And if you're here this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around except I want to look at you and I want to ask you this question. Do do you want to trust Jesus for your salvation in a way that maybe you have never done before? And if that's you and you don't know how to do it, you don't know anything about it, but you just want to raise your hands and I I will connect with you. Just look at me, raise your hands. I see a hand going up. Thank you so much. I see two hands. I see three hands. I see four. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else? I'm going to give it another moment. Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what I just absolutely cannot do. Instead of being motivated and entertained, I pray, God, that we would have our hearts pierced, Lord. Pierced by your truth. That you would grant us the gift of salvation 
you know, to many here today, God, those that raise their hand, that you would open up hearts and minds and that we would become to see you as our joy, to see you as our treasure, that pearl of great price that the Bible talks about, that we would sell everything in order to have the pearl, to obtain the pearl because it's so valuable. Well, that salvation is our pearl. And I pray that, God, if there's an emotional response today, that it would be a motive response to your goodness to us, despite us. We thank you and we praise you that you are good and that you do good. You always are good. And it's for your beautiful name, I pray. Amen.